0: It's a privilege to be here and to bring God's Word to you. And I would just like to say that some of you might remember that in 2016, I was diagnosed with a a large brain tumor, and I was prayed for by many saints here in Zambia. In fact, I remember my dear friend, Brother Mark Chansky, was teaching a class, and I don't remember if it was LMC or CMC, and he texted me about a week after the surgery, and he said, Brother, you were lifted up in prayer all day long. And I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to know that the family of God is all throughout the world. And I have brothers and sisters all throughout the world. And thank you for remembering me. I I obviously uh, recovered by God's grace. Of course, you might want to wait until after the sermon to determine whether I fully recovered. But it is, it is a pleasure to be with you. So if you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn... To the book of Habakkuk. Now if you, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, go ahead and turn to Habakkuk and you'll read the same thing. Habakkuk chapter 3, famous passage, starting at verse 17, this is the word of the Lord. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, he makes my feet like deers, he makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Well, let's ask our Father for help. Father, we come to you and this is your word, it's your word to us. And, Father, we acknowledge gladly that apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from your Spirit, we can do nothing. And so we pray, Father, for the help of your grace and your Spirit this afternoon. We pray, Father, that your grace would overcome the weariness of mind and body. We pray that you would help us to to hear and to receive your Word. Father, we pray for the one who preaches. May he preach with the power that you supply, so that in everything, Jesus Christ would receive the glory and the honor and the praise. Father, we ask that you would do good to your people today through the word, and may you receive all of the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We all know the passage, James chapter 1 and verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter various trials. It's interesting that that word various is the word that means diversified or manifold. In fact, that word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to Joseph's coat. And so there's a sense in which the diversified trials of life, if you will, the multicolored trials of life, are always upon us. Whether it's a brain tumor, whether it is health issues, whether it is depression, whether it is a broken relationship, whether it is wayward children, whether it is living in a country that's falling apart, whether it is financial pressures or whether it's the death of a loved one we all know what it is to experience the variegated trials of life a few years ago I was struck by this article by Vanitha Reisner and it is called what if the worst happens and she writes these words and they caught my attention she says I've spent a lifetime considering the what-ifs. Those questions, those questions have a way of unsettling me, of destroying my peace, leaving me insecure. I wondered if my health spirals downward and I end up in an institution, will God be enough? If my children rebel and never walk closely with the Lord, will God be enough? If I never remarry and never feel loved again, will God be enough? If my ministry doesn't flourish and I never see fruit from it, will God be enough? If my suffering continues and I never see any purpose in it, will God be enough? That question, will God be enough, is one of those questions that as people who encounter various trials, we need to be asking ourselves that question all of the time. Because because one of these days, the various trials of life, the garden variety of trials that we experience may well give way to the kind of trial that one of our congregants suffered just uh, uh, five weeks ago. On August 11th, I was sitting in the doctor's office. I was waiting to get some tests. It was between certain tests, and I'm sitting there, and I get a text from a man in our church who's been in our church for, for 25 years. He is uh, he's a dear friend. He's not just a solid church member. He is a bosom friend, and he sends me a text, and he says, Mateo, his 19-year-old grandson, was killed in a rollover crash today at the ranch. I couldn't believe the words that I was looking at. Not only was Matteo Jeff and Kathy's grandson but he was also Walter and Sarah's son. I had baptized Walter when he was Matteo's age. And I had, I had married Walter and Sarah in their parents' backyard. And I had baptized each one of those children. In fact, Mateo had been baptized just one year prior to this. I performed his oldest sister's wedding. This family's dear to me. And I sat there and I couldn't believe the words that were on my phone. And so I texted him back. I said, I'll be there as soon as, as soon as I'm done with this doctor's appointment. And I absolutely dreaded calling my wife to tell her Mateo was gone. Absolutely dreaded calling my daughter who babysat Teo for most of his childhood and tell her he was gone and as I made those calls, the words could barely come out of my mouth. And as they did, they were broken with sobs and tears. And then on the other side, nothing but the heartbreaking sound of my own wife and daughter. I got to Walter's house and I will tell you, I've never heard or seen grief like this. I walked into the door and Walter, who's quite a bit taller than me, just collapsed into my arms. I could hear Sarah in the back room wailing with her mother. Is God enough? On your absolute worst day, will God be enough? When you hear the worst news of your life, will God be enough? And I want to ask us this afternoon, not only is he going to be enough, but I want to ask us, in the midst of, of broken hearts, in the midst of, of trials and pain and affliction, if God is enough, what does that sound like among God's people? I'm going to argue that Habakkuk chapter 3 tells us that that kind of faith sounds like something. And so as we turn to this text, just a few reminders about this passage. If you want to learn more about Habakkuk this week, then come to the class, I suppose. But Habakkuk was written during a time of national upheaval. There was corruption and injustice, and the nation was facing the impending invasion and really doom from the Babylonians. You could say that from Habakkuk's perspective that it wasn't quite dark yet, but it was getting there. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 16 sort of captures the, the, the awfulness of the moment Habakkuk says in 3.16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk was so shaken by what was about to come. He was overwhelmed In fact, the description that he gives of himself is is that as the weight of that news of the impending doom of his people, as it came, he convulsed, he, he reeled with fear. The great what if was about to happen. And the shadows were falling and they were falling fast and it was about to become very, very dark. The impending pain, however, doesn't blind Habakkuk. And the darkness doesn't destroy his faith. That's what I want us to see this afternoon from this text, is is when the what-if happens, when the worst happens, when the worst day of your life happens, you will see God is enough. And even though it gets dark, and it gets dark quickly, and you feel as if you're reeling from the pain, the fact is is that the darkness does not need to overtake your faith. And so let's look at this wonderful poem from from Habakkuk 3. He says, verse 17, "...though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food." The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What what Habakkuk is describing for us in verse seventeen is is a day in which everything goes wrong. When he says the talks about the fig tree and the vine and the fields and the flock, all of those were covenant signs of blessing from God. In fact, back in Deuteronomy, it says this Deuteronomy eight seven to ten. It says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing waters out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. And so the the, the very point of chapter 3 and verse 17 is that is that there are going to be times when the signal blessings of God fail in our lives and the very things that we have, we've, we've counted on and we've looked to and we've even recognized have come from the hand of God, there may be a time in God's strange and dark providence where those good things, where those blessings are actually just taken away from us in a time of despair and trouble. And I ask you this afternoon, is your faith in God the kind of faith that leaves room when the blessings disappear? Is your faith in God the kind of faith that says, even though the blessings of life that I've loved and I've flourished and and, and experienced, even when those disappear, yet I still trust in the Lord? That's the question. Those external blessings can come and go They're not guaranteed. And here's one of the things that that, that strikes us, is that when those blessings are gone, when God actually withholds them or even takes them away, it's as if the giver of those gifts is asking, am I enough for you without the gifts that I give? It is possible to love the gifts of God more than we love the God who gave the gifts. And so Habakkuk describes a day in which, in which the the field is yielding no food, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stall. And what you have in this description in verse 17 is you have the representation of, in a sense, the luxuries of life, the vines and the figs, so forth, but you also have a picture of the necessities of life, the bread, the milk, and the meat. And so the, de- the time that he's describing, both luxuries and necessities fail. The material blessings of God dry up. Verse 18 starts in, in the ESV with, with yet. Yet. There's a sense where as you get to verse 18, the prophet is not asking, what if these things happen? He's not just simply posing some sort of hypothetical. What if? In a sense, it's it's even if even if these things happen, right? Even if these things happen, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. A uh, More literal rendering would be something like this. Yet, in light of all of the blessings drying up, yet in Yahweh, I will exalt. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Do you know what the kind of word exalt is? Exult is this great word of jubilation. It's this, it's this great word of, of enthusiastic joy. And so, here's, here's the most amazing thing. Verse 17, everything in life goes wrong. Verse 18, even though everything's gone wrong, the prophet says, I exult in God. In fact, these words put together, exult, rejoice, they're often found in Hebrew Bible, put together. And these words describe, quote, an emotion of joy which finds expression in singing and shouting. And so here is the worst day of his life here is that, that, that great what if that has now happened. The worst has finally come and he turns around and he says he's going to exult and he's going to rejoice. And to rejoice is, is a shout of exultation. So the picture is the prophet has just experienced the worst day of his life and there, is, there are these enthusiastic, vigorous expressions of joy. I just want to say there's nothing quiet about these words. They're earnest words. They're emotive words. The, these are not the words of one who is a stoic who has, has this expression of a stiff upper lip and he says, well, I'm going to praise God no matter what. This is, this is somebody whose heart actually is, is, is so locked in to who God is that there is an expression of joy in the midst of his worst day. You do know that in your Bibles, joy is not inconsistent with suffering and sorrow. In fact, we could look at a number of passages in both the Old and the New Testaments, and and there are times where where we even rejoice in our suffering. Think of the apostles in, in Acts chapter 4. They were beaten for the sake of the name, and then they were released, and they went forth rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the name. There are other passages that simply teach us that we can be, in the words of Paul, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now, it's not always wise to use James 1-2, the first verse you share with somebody who's just had the worst day of their life. But I would just remind us, consider it all joy. My brethren, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so, here's the prophet, and he says, even though the the luxuries of life fail, even though the necessities of life fail, yet I'm going to rejoice in Yahweh, the God of my salvation. Now, you know that in in your English Bible, when it says, Lord, and it's in caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is God's divine covenant name. And so, it's no accident that Habakkuk is saying, I'm going to rejoice in my covenant Lord. I'm going to rejoice in the God who has bound himself to me in his covenant love. I'm going to rejoice in the God whom I know is always faithful. So, is is it always easy to see the faithfulness of God? And the answer is no, it's not always easy. But we walk by faith, not by sight. And so when the worst day comes, the prophet says, I think of my covenant Lord, who loves me with unfailing covenant love. He is the God of my salvation. What good songs we sang this afternoon. Just rejoicing in what God has done for us. And and here's the thing, is that when the worst does happen, there's something that never changes. And that is your name is still written in the book of life. You're still loved by your heavenly Father. You're still in union with Jesus Christ. On your worst possible day, your sins are still washed away in the blood of Christ. Christ. On your worst possible day, you're still clothed in his righteousness. None of that changes one bit. And so here the the, the prophet rejoices. He understood something, and that is something that we need to understand. It's something that Paul picks up in Romans chapter 8, and that is that God is so committed to us His love is is so unfailing towards us that he is absolutely determined to cause everything in our life to work towards our salvation. There's not one thing that comes in to our life that our Father does not have a design. It doesn't mean that you understand the design. It doesn't mean that you figure out the formula. But there is a confidence, a faith that says, whatever my God ordains is right. I know that He's working this out for good. I don't know how. I don't pretend to know how. In fact, I wish I had a glimmer of how, but oftentimes we don't. But God is enough. The Sovereign Lord, Yahweh, my Lord, Elohim Adonai, right? So the, the, the names of God are not, are not accidental in the text. He is my strength. And so what, what is the prophet doing? As, as the blessings are taken away, as, as the luxuries of life and the necessities of life dry up before his very eyes, as the impending doom is about to come, there is a sense in which by reciting the names of God in the way that he does and then saying, it's that God who is my strength, he's simply doing what David had done back in Psalm 16. David says, I continually set the Lord before me. That is, I, Psalm 16.8, I put him before my mind's eye. I set him before, before my heart and my mind in such a way that all that he is for me is the object of my faith and my confidence in him. So I continually set the Lord before me, and because He is at my right hand, that is the, my place of strength, security, protection, because He's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. One of the most powerful things that we can do in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, when the what-if happens, is simply to focus on who God is and what he is like. Those who know their God will be strong and do great exploits. Those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. One One of the problems that we face so often is that we'll encounter a trial... And then all of a sudden we'll, we'll, we'll be overwhelmed by it and we'll feel our faith just collapsing. And the reality is, is we've not done anything to build our soul up in the character and attributes of God. I have to know God is sovereign before the trial comes. I have to know God is faithful before the what-if happens. If God is to be enough, I need to know who He is before the dark day comes. And so here the prophet focuses on God as His strength. The psalmist again in Psalm 28, verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart exalts, and with my song I will thank Him. God is my strength and my shield, and because he is, my heart trusts him. One of my favorite passages, Psalm 23, Psalm of Asaph, and when he gets to verses 25 and 26, he says, he says this. So you remember Psalm 73. He's agonized over why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Okay. He gets to the end of that psalm and he says these words. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. And though my heart and my strength may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my inheritance forever. The nearness of my God is my good." The prophet then says something that might seem strange to, to some people. To us Nevadans, it seems quite natural. He's made my feet like hinds feet. He's made me walk in high places. So where we live, we have, whether you know this or not, Nevada has more mountain ranges. Thank you, brother. Nevada has more mountain ranges than any other state in the Union. So, we think of it just as dry desert. It's a very mountainous state. And we have a lot of deer. And the deer that we have, I know this is probably really exciting to all of you. It's exciting to me because deer season is next month. We have mule deer. And mule deer are big deer, okay? They're not like the little scrawny deer that they have over in California on the coast, these are big deer. These are, these are big bucks, and there have been times where we've been driving around this area called Lake Topaz. It's windy road, lake on the left, mountain on the right. And there'll be times where you're driving, and you will see a deer coming down that mountain almost at full speed. And they're really something else to watch. And then, instead of running in front of the car and, and leaving this world before its time... It stops on a dime and turns around and goes up the hill with as much agility as it had coming down the hill. They're really remarkable creatures and when the prophet says he makes my feet like hinds feet, he makes me walk on high places, New English translation says he gives me the agility of a deer. He enables me to negotiate The Rugged Terrain, New Living Translation, He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. And so when God is our joy and God is our strength, He enables us by His grace to navigate through those trials He gives us His grace and a spiritual agility and a sure-footedness so that we do not fall. And so when God is our strength and God is our joy and we rely on Him, He lifts us up in in His proper time. He lifts us up in His due time. I want to ask a question. What does this rejoicing in God in the midst of trials look like? Now you might think, well, you've, you've finished the text. But I haven't. There's, there's one part left. Do you see it? You might skip over it when you're reading. Notice it says this to the choir master with stringed instruments. I remember the first time that I actually paid attention to the postscript. So the postscript is part of the inspired text. Alright? It's in the Hebrew text. That's how the text actually ends. And what occurred to me was that that postscript was instructional, right? Because what the prophet is doing is after giving this beautiful, powerful, God-exalting, faith-building poem, he now gives instruction for using it in worship. In other words, what he has just said is now supposed to be sung. Do you see it there? There. Do you see the significance of the postscript? Do you see the significance after this beautiful poem of saying, for the choir master on stringed instruments? In other words, people of God, darkness is coming, the day of sadness is coming, the great what if is about to happen, and God is enough, and so here's what you're going to do. Because God is enough, you're going to sing. You're going to actually sing. Martin Luther gave his testimony about music like this he says music is a fair and lovely gift of God which has often awakened and moved me to the joy of preaching music drives away the devil and makes people happy next after theology I give to music the highest place and greater honor I would not change what little I know of music for something great Experience proves that next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. We know that to the devils, music is distasteful and insufferable. If Luther's right, and I think he is, the way that you guys sing God's praise, the devil flees. My heart, listen to Luther, he says, my heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from my dire plagues. In 1989... I was uh, a college student at Biola University in Southern California. Ariel and I were newly married. We lived in a house that was provided for by the church that I worked at. She had a job, I had a job getting ready for seminary in the next year or so and one day I go to work and I find out that I'm going to lose my job. And on that same day, she went to work and found out she was going to lose her job. And so we get home that night and she says, I have something to tell you. And I said, oh, I have something to tell you. And she says, you first. And I said, no, you first. And she says, I'm going to lose my job. And I looked at her and I said, I'm going to lose mine too. Well, then the very next day the man that owned the house that allowed the church to let us live in it said, I'm selling the house. You have to be out in 30 days. And then the very next day, I get home. I'm sort of uh, sullen. I'm morose. I feel sad. Um, you're wondering, where's, where's the money going to come from? Um, you're wondering, where are we going to live? Southern California's never been a cheap place to live. And then I get home and my wife hands me a card. And I open the card, and I read the card. And I read this card, and it makes no sense to me. And I look at her like, am I supposed to understand woman language here? I don't, I don't understand. And she says with a smile, read it again. And I said, okay. So I read it again. I said, I still don't get it. And I could tell by the look on her face, the glow on her face, She was pregnant, and she says, we're having a baby. And so, if you're a young man, listen to me and take my advice. Don't do what I did when I was told we were going to have a baby. I looked at her, I fell against the wall, I slid down the wall, I put my hands in my face between my knees, and I said, a baby, we don't have a job, we don't have a place to live, and, and you're excited that we're having a baby. That was the wrong way to respond, all right? But it reflected the burden of my heart. And so the next day I went to chapel, As we walked in to the gymnasium where we had chapel, there were were people handing out little pieces of yarn. Had no idea what was going on. I walked in, and there was a a huge cross at the front of the chapel with a spotlight on it. The rest of it was dark. And I went and I sat down, and the president stood up. And this is going to sound corny to, to many of you. It sounds corny to me now. And he said, some of you came in here with trials, and I thought, you don't even know the half of it, brother. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to take that little piece of yarn and for every trial, I want you to tie a knot. And so, of course, I have mine tied. It's like a big ball of yarn at the, by the time I'm done. And the guy next to me is like, well, I got a chemistry exam tomorrow. Yeah, it's really not a trial. And so anyway, they said, what we're going to do is you're going to take that little piece of yarn symbolizing all of your trials. We want you to come and just toss it at the foot of the cross. It's a symbolic act. And so, of course, I push people out of the way to get down to the foot of the cross, to throw my my ball of trials down there. And we go back to our seats and we sang, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. And I had sung that song dozens, if not hundreds of times. But I will tell you something. That day, I sang it for the first time. And God used it, and He used those words, and He used that truth to do what? To lift up my sad and burdened soul up out of the miry clay. And so I went home, and I got a new job, and she got a job, and we got a better house. Did any of that happen? The answer is no, none of that happened. Right? Things actually were still really hard but there was a huge difference and what God used to rescue my sorry soul was a song. It was a hymn that had truth. Fast forward many years. I have a big brain tumor about the size of a walnut growing into my optic nerve, can't see, barely can see out of my left eye. It's wrapped around my carotid arteries and the The doctor in in Reno, Nevada looks at the MRI and he says, I can't do the surgery. It's too complicated. You have this tumor wrapped around your carotid arteries. I know who can do the surgery, though. And so we go over to San Francisco, to the University of California, San Francisco, which is a teaching hospital, and we happen to have, by God's grace, the surgeon who is the expert on this kind of tumor. And so I was naive. I don't know how to read an MRI. All I saw was this big thing in the middle of my head. And I said, are you going to be able to go up through my nose and get it out? And he starts laughing. He says, I'm not going to get, go through your nose. What I'm going to do is I'm going to cut here, pull your face off, and then cut the top of your skull off and then go at it from there. And he's got a little model skull. And he says, so we're going to cut here. And at one point, I'm just like, that's enough. I don't need to hear anymore. I completely trust you. So the surgery lasts for 11 and a half hours. And through that night, I'd wake up every hour, on the hour. And I was nauseous and my head hurt and without Any effort, what was going through my mind, be still my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. The next morning, my heart stopped. God spared my life. He spared my life twice. Two days in a row. I actually knew something was wrong. I had to lay flat, perfectly flat, and the the nurse came in and elevated me just a little bit, and as she did, my heart rate was dropping very, very quickly. This little nurse never saw her before, never saw her after, She makes eye contact with me. She starts yelling, and all of a sudden, there was ordered chaos in my room, and um, they start doing chest compressions, which I'm awake for. And there are these thoughts that are going through my mind. Some of them were crazy, surreal thoughts. But there was one that kept coming back to me again and again. Lord, my life is in your hands. Jesus is my redeemer. My life is in your hands, and my wife had come, and this was, of course, during shift change, and so she, she knew something was wrong. They wouldn't let her in. Finally, they had, um, since it's a teaching hospital, they have the uh, the interns, right? So they're the ones that take bedside manner class last, and. She comes, he comes up to my wife and he says, well, we got him back. And she says, well, where did you take him? He says, no, he, he coded, but we got him back. She says, he coded? What, is, what do you mean? Well, his heart stopped. She goes, can I see him? So she comes in and, and I remember I wake up and she's holding my hand and she's got tears welled up in her eyes. And I look at her and I said... You see what happens when you're late? You miss all the excitement. At which she sternly told me that I was not nearly as funny as I thought. And I said, I've seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Recovery was rough. There were days where my heart rate was dropping 45, 43, 42 there were times where I was afraid that if I went to sleep I wouldn't wake up. And it was the songs of Zion. It was songs that gave truth that strengthened my soul. And so even in the midst of trials, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of darkness, we not only can worship, we should worship. We can exalt Christ in our trials by trusting Him and clinging to Him, and our exaltation of Christ should burst forth in song. God's people have always been a singing people. The people who exalt Christ in our songs. I will tell you for the last number of weeks I've had that family that I told you about at the beginning sitting right behind me in worship and I can't tell you what it means to me to hear them through tears sing, I will wait for you I will wait for you On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. And When I hear their voices cracking and breaking as they sing, I will wait for you, I will wait for you, through the storm and through the night. I know that there is something that's happening as they are clinging to their Savior by faith singing out the words of praise and trust in God and so brothers and sisters what if the worst happens God will be enough what if the worst happens exult, sing, rejoice in the God of your salvation and you will find that when he puts that song in your heart it strengthens faith and does good to your soul. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, we know that there are many sad hearts here today. Father, Kabuata Baptist Church has, has lost a pillar and a friend, and Father, on top of that, there are other trials and other sufferings that maybe are only known to you and the sufferer, And Father, we pray that you would take your holy word and we ask that you would use it to strengthen your people, to buoy their faith, and to cause them, Lord, to exalt in you their covenant-keeping God. Father, we ask that through the storm and through the night, Jesus Christ would be praised. Amen. Thank you very much, Pastor, for that word for us.